true. <laughs> all right, good morning, everybody. Very glad to see you all. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, Bub, would you close this door when you get a chance? Thank you. Today we have a really good lesson because the action is coming. And we're going to be focusing on the second half of chapter 13 and chapter 14. And so we're going to a reminder that if you go to stmichael.org RBS, you can see all of our old lessons. You can get them at podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for those of you joining us online, of course, you in person, I love questions. The questions help guide what we do. And so ask anytime you want. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks. Thanks for bringing us together today. Thanks for giving us the privilege of being able to study the work you have done in the world through faithful people, that we can also become your faithful people today to be your hands and feet of love in the world and help extend your kingdom here on earth. Be with our friends, those who cannot be here today, especially those who need your healing touch that they may be supported and surrounded by people who care well for them and love them. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Yes. I shared it with so many of my friends. Oh, thank you. Every one of them was so touched. Well, thank you. Sandra's noting um, we sent out a Thanksgiving prayer, and that's actually a very good reminder that the 75th anniversary books for St. Michael's anniversary year are on sale now in the bookshop. You can pre-purchase them, and they should be landed and ready for pickup in about two weeks or so. So they will be here for Christmas for sure, and they make great Christmas gifts. And so those of you who are here, you can run by the bookshop today. Those of you joining us online or anyone at any time, you can go online and purchase those books um, as a pre-sale, and then they'll be available to buy directly from the bookshop the week, week and a half or so before Christmas. And what we did with that book, although yes, there is some good written history in that book, of course. Um, one nice page features our own Ann Mills, who just walked in. There are lots of beautiful pictures, historic pictures, current pictures. It is really meant to be a coffee table book, not a book that you would put on your shelf and then reference like a history book, but one you would put out with big, beautiful color pictures, um, that especially from the last five or six years when we've been taking really high quality pictures. In addition, in the middle of the book, is a whole set of prayers written by current and past clergy of St. Michael for different moments throughout our lives. And so the prayer that we sent out at Thanksgiving is the Thanksgiving prayer in that book. We have prayers for Easter and Christmas. We have prayers for the birth of a child, the loss of a pet, graduation, you name it. There are all different kinds of life moments, and we've sourced small little collect-style prayers from current and past clergy of St. Michael, just so that it can be useful to you in your life as well. So I don't know about you, but I have attended many large meals with family or friends where the host does not necessarily love praying extemporaneously. Um, and I'm one of those frustrating priests where when someone very graciously says, would you pray? I say, no, it's your house. And so they, 
They love that. And so this is really meant to be a gift for you all so that you can actually do this with your family and your friends in times of need, good and sad. And so I hope you will grab one of those books. Not only is it beautiful, but we hope it is helpful for you as well. They are $5,000. No, they are, um, I think they're $49.99. Get them fast. Okay. Um, let's jump in. We're going to begin at the second half of chapter 13. We're going to be chapter 13, verse 17. And there are going to be four sections of today's lesson. The first is guidance for the people. Second, Pharaoh changes his mind. It's when the good stuff happens. The third is going to, we're going to talk about the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And then the fourth, we're going to go through the sea. So we're going to start with guidance for the people. Chapter 13, verse 17, let's go. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness through the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So now before we jump in, we'll pause there. Before we jump into the specifics of the passage, let's have a map. Okay, I haven't drawn a map in a while. Interestingly, the story that we are telling here is one that we can't really verify with any historic evidence. And we're going to get into that, even though we've got lots of concrete, specific ideas and places happening in these verses, we can't really pinpoint. And so that actually means that we're not positive actually where the Israelites go. And so if we do up our little map, we basically have Egypt over here. Is this showing up on the screen, Cedric? Great. And then we've got Sinai right here. And then obviously as you go up here is Israel. So we've got the Mediterranean Sea right here. And as the Israelites leave Egypt, they leave from somewhere around here, there are essentially three different paths they might have taken. They might have gone a relatively northern path. They could have gone what scholars call a central path, which dips down into Sinai. Or they could have taken a very southern path, which goes all the way down into Sinai. Ultimately, the Israelites are going to go through the wilderness and come into Egypt from the east. And so when we get to the point later on this year, when the Israelites have kind of, uh, I hate to say failed, 
But when they've been sent back out into the wilderness for 40 years to let an entire generation die, and they get to the point at which they will cross over into the promised land and take over Jericho, they're going to be in what is today the country of Jordan, looking over the Jordan River into Israel from the east, looking west. Does that make sense geographically? They are in Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula, where they receive the commandments and they begin what is the formation of the Jewish identity and the Jewish people. But the wilderness that they wander is going to essentially be southern or south of Israel and potentially over into Jordan. You good? Any questions about that before we continue? Here, Sinai? Over here? It really depends. Essentially, they're going to be in southern Israel. That's kind of this area here. Um, Potentially, they could have gone into what would today be Saudi Arabia. Certainly, what is today Jordan. Jordan is over here. Um, If you imagine Israel, I think we've talked before, Israel's tall and skinny. It's only just over 100 miles east to west and about 400 miles north to south. Israel is bordered on its east side by Jordan, and it's the Jordan River that runs from Galilee in the north all the way down to the Dead Sea that creates the border between Israel and Jordan. And so when they look out over the Promised Land, they're actually standing on some of the mountains in western Jordan, looking over the Jordan River into what is today Israel. Jericho is actually just north of the Dead Sea, just across the Jordan River. That's where essentially John the Baptist would have gone to baptize people in Jesus's day. And Jordan River, if you have ever seen, say, the Mississippi River, it's not that. Um, The Jordan River is what we used to call a ditch um, when I grew up. And so it really is not much Um, It's some water. It's enough to maybe go down to your knees or maybe even to your waist if the water's really high. That's it. And it's dirty and gross. So anyway, that's the Jordan River that runs north to south here that divides Jordan and Israel. Any other questions? All right. Thank you, Map. Let's jump into these verses. The people have finally been released from Egypt. Good news. As we remember from a couple weeks ago before Thanksgiving, a lot of people are leaving Egypt. 600,000 men plus women, children, and the like. It also could be 600,000 households. It could be that it's 600 households, not 600,000. The Hebrew is a little indefinite, so we're not entirely sure that the real point is it's a lot of people. And it could be a lot of people or it could be a lot of people. But one way or the other, we've got a massive amount of people walking out into the wilderness. As noted in the map, when you look at Egypt to Israel, there's that curve around the Mediterranean. It's important for us to note civilizations existed and they traded with each other. So there were roads, there were trade routes. Egypt, as a major civilization, would have absolutely traded with some of the other 
Near East or Middle Eastern civilizations at the time, Babylon, Persia, you name it. So there would have been roads that followed the curve of the Mediterranean from Egypt up into Israel. Israel was essentially a land bridge of sorts between some of the big African nations like Egypt and Ethiopia and some of the Middle Eastern or West Asian nations like Persia and Babylon. Israel was not the easiest land for agriculture. And so although it wasn't bad, it wasn't great. And so you had empires, uh, that's a little strong, you had groups, tribes, like the Canaanites, who lived in what is today Israel, but they were always kind of the second-tier tribes or groups because the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, they wanted the really fertile land. And so they took the top-tier land and left the second-tier land, like the nation of Israel today, to lesser tribes that were just not as strong. Israel may not have been a great place to grow a lot of stuff, but it was also relatively flat by the coast. And so obviously, if you're creating trade routes, you don't really want to go up and over mountains. If you can help it, you want to stay as flat as possible to be able to draw carts and walk animals and all of those things. What is interesting about this note, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 13, I should say there are multiple good notes made, at least five, in these opening verses of today's lesson. In verse 18, we say, we see, God led the people by a roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. What is being noted here clearly is they're not taking the normal route. If you were to go from Egypt to Canaan, Israel, the Promised Land, whatever you want to call it, you would have taken the roads that were up near the Mediterranean. Had the Israelites taken those roads, they would have encountered Egyptians, and that is problematic. Because if they were to encounter Egyptians, the Egyptians could have stopped them, could have bugged them, could have, who knows. And so instead, they're taking that southern route down into Sinai. Now, how south they went, we really don't know. But they went far enough south that they're essentially going to a place where there are no roads. So they are kind of out in this unchartered, uncharted kind of area. Second, yes. Oh, good question. Okay, where's the Red Sea on my map? So, <laughs> the Red Sea, well, the Red Sea is up here by Sinai. So, the Red Sea is over here. But, when we get to the point at the end of today's lesson where they cross the Red Sea, we're going to have a chat about what that might have meant. Because it's, it's probably not the Red Sea like we think of it today. It's probably somewhat different. Um, and it's also not that important where it was as much as it is what happened. Um, and so we'll get there. But essentially you're talking about there are these two seas that, or gulfs that flank the Sinai Peninsula. And it's likely when they crossed, they're crossing right here in this northwestern kind of tip of this gulf. The Red Sea kind of keeps going out beyond 
the Sinai Peninsula. But it's likely that when they have their moment, when they cross on dry land, it's going to be this northwestern tip right there between Egypt proper and the Sinai Peninsula. Any other questions? Good, I like questions. Ask them online too, because we can do it today. Let's keep going. So we saw in the beginning of verse 18 that they went a roundabout way. In the second half of verse 18, we see the Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And that's an interesting note, isn't it? The Israelites understand, well, let me say it this way. As the story is being told, the way the story is being told by our storyteller is that the Israelites had some sense that they were not going to have an easy go of this, which of course makes sense. Traveling off the trade routes at this time would have been dangerous anyway. I can remember, I don't know how many of you, it's one of those things where we don't think much of it. If we were to say, drive to El Paso or something from Dallas, we know that there are going to be hours of driving in the middle of nothing, right? I mean, like, for real nothing. Here in America, that's just kind of what you do on a road trip. I can remember 11, 12 years ago now, Nicole and I went to Egypt, and we are the quintessential Americans, right? We're, we go to Cairo, and we think we want to go down to Luxor and Memphis to see some of the big stuff, so we took a train, great. We're back in Cairo, and we want to go to Alexandria to see where the, the coast and where the new, new the library is. If you've not been to the new library of Alexandria, it is a phenomenal building. They've, it's, it's amazing. So we just hired a driver, right? Because we didn't have a car, and we're like, yeah, let's drive up to Alexandria. We're looking at the map, and we're thinking, nah, that's like, what, two and a half hour drive? Not that bad. So hire a driver, this random nice person that we don't know from Adam, um, drives us out of Cairo, and we are driving, and we're driving, and we're looking around, and there is nothing. It's like driving out to El Paso. And he stops because he needs gas, and we pull over, and it's one of those, like, it's got two pumps and a little building, and there is nothing. And he walks into the store, and I turn to Nicole and I said, I'm pretty sure this is how Americans get abducted abroad. Um, I'm just thinking, like, this was not smart. This is, you know, and we, obviously, I'm here. Um, we did not get abducted. But in the wilderness where the Israelites are, you can think sort of of, like, totally undeveloped rural West Texas. There's just nothing. These are not mountainous, really, areas. They are arid. You're not having to go through the forests of western North Carolina. That's not what this is. This is like bare, flat land as far as you can see. And so these people are walking these paths, but even though they are so rural, they're going to encounter some resistance. And so as the storyteller tells this story, there's already this hint here that the Israelites know they're going to have to fight their way through at some point. So they are ready for battle. Let's keep looking at some of the details here. Verse 19. Moses took with him the bones of Joseph who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. Joseph brought Jacob and all of his brothers and their households to Egypt 400 plus years ago, 
And as before Joseph died, Joseph made the Israelites promise that when God finally saw them, now that's very interesting, isn't it? There is this acknowledgement that there's going to be some time here where they're going to sense that God is not with them, but God's going to see them. God's going to take note of them. And we saw that in verse 1, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter 1 of Exodus, where God saw the people. He heard their cry and he acknowledged them. And so Joseph's promise is now coming to fulfillment. Once God sees you and God takes you out of here and God takes you back to the land that you've been promised, take me to and bury me there. And so they are fulfilling this promise that they made, their ancestors made to Joseph before he died. Verse 20. They set out from Sakoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now here we get to the place where our historicity begins to come into question. This place, Sakoth and Etham, uh, where is it? Uh, um, we aren't sure, not positive. It could be that this was a border town in Egypt that is known as Taku. It could also be that this was one of those cities that we saw in chapter 1 of Exodus that the Israelites actually built named Pithom. We don't know. But it does seem to imply that they've essentially reached the edge of the Egyptian empire, and when they cross from this place, they're essentially crossing out of incorporated Egypt, so to speak, and they're really going wilderness. So now it's different. It's not just rural Egypt. It's kind of nothing. It's almost the empty space where who knows who lives there. And so they've camped here at that moment, and they are about at the water's edge. So they're up in that northwestern Sinai Peninsula where they're going to have to cross some kind of water in order to get into the Sinai Peninsula. Lastly, we see in verse 21, the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. This is very important. God has not left them. When God comes to them and acknowledges them, sees them, and promises to deliver them out of Egypt, God is not simply dropping the plagues on the Egyptians, and when Pharaoh says, yes, you can go, saying, good luck. God is with them. God is staying with them, and not just in spirit, but there's this physical manifestation of God around the Israelites in pillars of cloud and fire. Visually speaking, God is the line leader of the Israelites going out into the wilderness, whether that's at night or by day, they are traveling and they are pushing. And it's an interesting idea that all of these people are traveling so constantly. If you, would, if you think back to your Western Civ class and you talk about the way armies used to move, part of what made battles so difficult in the past is you had to get people somewhere and you had to feed them along the way, and they had to actually sleep at some point, and that created logistical problems. Even today, with all of our technological advances, you can't take us somewhere faster than our physical bodies can actually be moved there. And once we get there, we have to have something. You gotta go to the bathroom, gotta eat some food, you've gotta sleep. 
And so the logistics of moving this kind of group of people is huge, and yet we see right here that they might travel by day and by night. They're making a move. This is not a convenience trip. This is something where they still seem to sense that they are not safe yet. That is going to be very true. So any questions before we move on to the second section of today? I've been excited about this day. It's a good one. All right. Section two, Pharaoh changes his mind. We're going to start chapter 14, verse 3. God says, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done? Letting Israel leave our service so that he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them, camped by the sea, by pi Hiharath, in front of Baal-Zephon. I don't know how you pronounce those, but that's what I'm going to say. So, here we have this moment where the Israelites are booking it. They're trying to get away from Pharaoh. They're still in Egypt. They're trying to cross out of Egypt. And Pharaoh has, in some way, figured out that he's really messed up. We have talked over the months that the Israelites were, in a sense, the economic foundation of Egypt that over the last couple centuries, Egypt had become so wealthy because they were so wise in all of their economic planning. They had food they could sell to other nations. They had security that they could promise to other nations as they grow bigger. And so they are so wealthy and they are so powerful. And what happens when a nation becomes wealthy and powerful? They begin to want other people to do the work for them. And so the Israelites are the working class. The Israelites are slaves, servants, whatever you want to say. Functionally speaking, they're the ones doing the work the Egyptians don't want to do. And so although the Egyptians are still human and they can clean stuff too, they don't really want to. Now put yourself in Pharaoh's position. The plagues have been awful. He was worn down. In a sense, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh was defeated. And so, shh, go, get out of here. I mean, can you imagine in his mind and the people's mind, they just wanted this to stop. And so if that means the Israelites go, then the Israelites go, get gone. But from that moment to now, we're not talking about a few hours or a couple days. We could be talking about weeks. 600,000 people packing up and leaving, walking a couple hundred miles. This is not happening in a day. This is happening in days and weeks. And so at this point, when the Israelites are on the verge of getting out of Egypt proper, Pharaoh has had enough time 
to actually reconsider his decision. And if you can put yourself in his shoes, he's got advisors around him who have probably been chattering in his ears for days now. Not only will it be inconvenient that the Israelites have gone away, and by inconvenient I mean now Egyptians are going to have to build stuff and clean stuff and grow stuff, but it's also problematic around their economy. So yes, there's the inconvenience of having to do things they don't want to do, but now you're talking about an entire economic structure that is really set on the foundation of a working class of laborers that are gone. And so I completely understand this moment when Pharaoh, in a sense, says, no, 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 we've made a mistake. We have to get them back. And so he saddles up, literally, and grabs the chariots, and they book it. Now, you think about all the people of the Israelite nation walking with all their stuff. This is not a quick trip. Not only would just everybody of all ages, from, from the very young to the very old, just not move quite so quickly, but you're talking about they have all of their stuff that they're schlepping with them, that's carts they're carrying, and they've got donkeys saddled with a whole bunch of junk, and so they're not moving quickly. Imagine how far they've gotten in a couple weeks. Well, you put a warrior on a chariot with a very healthy horse, and they can close that distance a whole lot faster. And so here you've got the army chasing after the Israelites, and they catch up with them when they are right there at the edge of the sea. I think that's about it for that section. Any questions there before we get to the good stuff? <laughs> no? All right. Section three, the devil you know. <laughs> Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I will pause there. That is, for what it's worth, one of my favorite set of verses in the entire Bible. There is something so human about this moment that we can all relate to. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. It's kind of exciting to get out of Egypt. They watched plague after plague after plague fail to move Pharaoh. Finally, plague 10, that horrible plague, changes him enough, breaks him down enough that he says, yes, go. Now they're off. They have literally left Egypt, and now they are walking toward the land that was promised hundreds of years ago to their ancestor Abraham, the land that is going to be their future. And now they're at the edge of the water, and they start to hear the hoofbeats. I mean, I just, I love this. It's so visceral. 
and you turn around and remember, this is not a forest, these are not mountains, this is a plain. And so very flat, very desolate, which means what? You can see some stuff very far away. So can you just picture, they turn, and there's the dust cloud of the chariots coming at them. <laughs> it gives me chills. I mean, it's just, it, it's scary because now, even though they've gotten to a point where they finally begin to trust that Yahweh is for real, that God is there, that God's going to do this for them, and then they see that, and they hear them coming, and they know that their backs are against the water, what are they supposed to do? They do what humans do. They start to whine and complain. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Y'all, that is so good. Was it because there were no graves? God, I love this. What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt, which is such an irony because they were slaves. What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? I'm sorry. What have you done to us, freeing us from slavery? It's crazy. And then they say, this is the thing we said. We told you this was going to happen. Leave us alone to serve the Egyptians because it would be better to serve them there in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness. All right. We know this. We may not have had our backs against the water to hear the chariots coming after us, but think of a time. Think of a time when you were absolutely certain that you were blessed. Put yourself in a place where you can remember a time where life was so good and people were so good and everything seemed to coalesce so well and you knew, you knew you were blessed. We just spent last week, I hope you did, saying thanks for just good stuff. And it doesn't mean everything's perfect, but we have this moment where we are grateful for the things we have, for the blessings that we have received. And how many times do we say when things are going well, we are so blessed. And yet, when stuff goes wrong, and when people get hurt, and when we lose, do we then also say, thank God we are so blessed? Not usually. Usually we say, were there no graves in Egypt that you would have let us die out here in the wilderness? I mean, we can pivot so hard from what is blessing to railing against whatever bad thing has happened to us. We know exactly what this is. And here in this moment, there might be nothing more human than this moment, which is so helpful for us. We are called by God into a way of life that's mostly not convenient or easy, but is so very good. And we're also called into a way of life that understands that blessings do not always make us happy. Happiness is a wonderful accident, but happiness is not the point. I don't know about you, but I hear all the time people wishing for others to just be happy. What do parents say about their children, which is, by the way, mostly a lie? I just want them to be happy, right? BS. 
Most parents want them to be doctors or whatever. Um, but still, we can't really say that. So we say, we just want them to be happy. <laughs> um, that's, not, that's not entirely true. But happy is not even the right thing to say. I would much rather my children, now believe me, I am, I'm totally guilty of all of this too. So that's why I know we all are. So yeah, happy, that's fine. I would much rather my children actually be grateful than happy um, or feel secure than to be happy. I mean, I think there are much higher goods than happiness. Happy, happiness is so cheap that it's so easy for us to think we're supposed to be or want to be or that that's the best goal so that when we're not, something's wrong. That's, it is a problem. And in a sense, the Israelites are in that same kind of place right now where they were happy. Now they're not happy. And so where is God in this? And they begin to rail and whine and complain. And by the way, they're going to do this again and again and again all the way through the wilderness. So we're going to hit, we're going to ring this bell multiple times. But for right now, I want us to sympathize, to actually put ourselves in their place because we could look at this and we could very easily be judgy. We could say, what is your problem? Have you not just seen all of these things that God has done? It'd be so easy for us to say, God literally just did 10 plagues, killed a bunch of people to get you free. Why in the world do you think that God, who is a pillar of cloud and fire, I mean, that's the other thing, right? God's not just there because they feel it. I mean, they can literally see God's presence in these pillars of cloud and fire, and still they're going to question God's faithfulness. They're going to question God's power, God's presence, God's ability to deliver them from anything. The answer is yes. They're still going to question all of that, even though they are tangibly witnessing God's presence with them. So how much harder is it for us to face those moments when our backs are up against the wall and bad things are happening and we get scared to remain faithful. We don't have pillars of cloud and fire in front of our face, and yet we're still called to be faithful. And for the Jewish people, this becomes the archetype of faithfulness. This, all along the way, these moments, where people in the past have faced problems and adversity only to throw their hands up and wonder where God is when God is quite literally right there in front of them is what has created for the Jewish people such a capacity to persevere. We in the 21st century know very well, unfortunately, how the Jews persevere in the face of horrible things, they don't gain the capacity for perseverance cheaply. And this is that moment when the root of that identity is really beginning to form. And that will sustain them for millennia. Mm -mm -mm. Look at verse 13. After their complaining, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. We'll stop there. God is not finished. And we have again a moment when God is going to act against the Egyptians. It is not only for the Israelites. It is also against the Egyptians. There's a moment in verse 17. God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. It seems like an odd thing to say. They are pursuing the Israelites, so why wouldn't they continue to pursue them? Well, in a moment, when we get to the visual spectacle, imagine the warriors standing there watching the Israelites walk across the water on dry land, seeing the walls of water on either side of them. They're scared. But God will harden their hearts. Remember, it's not emotion. It is God will strengthen their resolve and then they will follow in after them. So that's the end of section three. We pivot here to the last section of today's lesson with this fundamental idea that God is not finished, that even though the Israelites have lost faith in God, God does not lose faith in them. And that's what's gonna carry us into this last section for today. We're gonna to go through the sea. Look at verse 19. We're gonna read the whole thing. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry land, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites 
walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And we'll pause there. This story is captivating. It is so visually dazzling that when we think of the story of the Exodus, it's hard not to think first of the crossing of the Red Sea. It's just, it's incredible. And I don't know how many different times I've seen this displayed in a movie, but it's just, it's wonderful to see these walls of water, people walking across, the water comes crashing back down. But this is a hard story to hear. Like the 10th plague, this is mass death. The Egyptians, they're working for Pharaoh. These are just people in the army who are following orders, and they are devastated. We know at least 600 plus are there with Pharaoh. The way that the story is told, it seems to indicate it's 600 plus multiple times more than that are there at the army. Thousands of people have now died. It is both horrible and also an opportunity for the Israelites to give thanks for being delivered from Pharaoh, to have crossed this line and to be safe now. They're on the other side of the water. That water is a place where essentially they know it's too difficult for Pharaoh to chase after them. That and, of course, Pharaoh's army is, in a sense, devastated and gone. We might wish to explain this away with some literal ideas. So let's take a moment and pause to say there is a historic consideration here. I do not know how many different articles or stories or whatever I've read from people who try to explain how this could literally happen. So maybe it's a miracle. So let's start with one option is Moses raised his hands up and just like Cecil B. DeMille, it went whoop and there were big walls of water and they walked across and it was just that kind of crazy. Two, that there was some odd way in which wind blew or the tide went out or there was some sort of gravitational pull. I even saw something where like, well, the moon was really close to the earth that night and so it pulled the water farther than normal or I, whatever. That kind of stuff to me is a little beyond necessary. Third is that don't worry about how it happened or what happened. Instead, the idea of the story is that God remained faithful to the Israelites even when the Israelites were not faithful to God. There's the power. When we really look at this story, we can get way bogged down into the how did that happen and what actually happened and who did it happen to and all the other stuff. And instead, we miss the forest for the trees. The real point of this story for the Jews in history and for us is that the Israelites did not deserve God's deliverance. Did you hear that? They did not deserve this. They did not earn this. But apparently God thought they were worthy. And so God delivered them. God saved them. God took them to a place they could not go themselves. 
in order to protect them from whatever pain and heartbreak and loss was in their past. Hey, that sounds good. That might even sound Christian. Did you hear that? We are connected to this kind of story where we do not earn God's love, we do not earn God's salvation, God's grace, God's deliverance, and yet God thinks we're worthy. That is the message that we as Christians have received. It is also the message that has undergirded Judaism from the very beginning. And we see that here, if we can get beyond the whole, well, did the fish die if they didn't get in the water when they went? Don't worry about that. Instead, they were delivered. Somehow, they got across the water, and they got into the wilderness, they got into Mount Sinai, they created this incredible religious tradition, and it's all because God's faithfulness in them, and to be grateful for that kind of fidelity. I want to look at the very last line, verse 31. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people feared the Lord. They feared and they believed. It's kind of interesting. We, as Christians, I think far too often make Jesus out to be our friend. Buddy Jesus, friend Jesus. Have you seen that funny t-shirt? I love it. I owned one. It's pro I probably still have it somewhere. Where it's Jesus is like this. You know. <laughs> Buddy Jesus. Jesus is not our friend. Jesus is our savior. God is not our friend. God is not a warm hug. God is God. Think back to moments when you have really felt God's presence. We have been in a holy space. I love the term thin place, where it feels like heaven and earth are just right there next to each other. That kind of moment can make you feel sort of tingly. And when God is really there and you really feel it, there's also kind of a little bit of a scary moment because God is still God. And yeah, it's nice to feel God's presence in that really strong way, but it's also a little scary because God's presence is intimidating. And Moses will find this out. When Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the commandments, and he comes back, and his face is all shiny. And I love that scene when Charlton Heston comes down, and it looks like he's had a lot of Aquanet, you know, in his hair. Um, there is that kind of feeling when God is really there with you. It's kind of like blow you back. In this moment, the Israelites fear and believe. And what is interesting is that I do think the writers of Exodus intended to draw a line to the very beginning of Exodus, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 15 is this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. I remember way back in the beginning, we talked about how 
the Hebrew word for fear is also the same word as revere. And so back when the midwives feared slash revered God such that they resisted the power of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, all-powerful on earth, they were still afraid of God. They still revered God more. And so they refused to kill these babies and instead lied and said, you know, the Hebrew women are too strong for us. But what really happened there is you had these two midwives, remember, named women means very important. Their fear and their reverence actually called them to be better than they would have been otherwise. And now, really, for the first time since then, we get a very similar phrase that the Israelites feared and they believed in God. And so there is, in a sense, almost a full circle that has happened from the very beginning where these midwives, who, who knows who they were, why they would have known this, had this sensibility about them that God's presence was so powerful and so reverential that they could resist whatever the world threw at them and instead follow God's call, now the Israelites, in a macro sense, in a communal sense, have come to a place where something has finally happened. They've crossed a line where their fear and their reverence has now actually changed them for good. It doesn't mean they won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they won't kind of go back to those old little redundant patterns of whining and complaining, because we'll see that for sure. But something shifts in them. A switch is flipped in a very meaningful way. And now that fear and that reverence has actually helped to create the belief that will put them on a new path for good. That's all I have for you today. Any questions or clarity before we break? All right, well, happy Wednesday. I'll see you all next week. Bye.